0: Are you paving the way for the life you want? Facing decisions that may affect you personally and financially? The Decision Dialogues podcast, brought to you by Modera Wealth Management, presents personal stories about navigating through life's pivotal moments. Narratives that we hope will inspire you as you create your own story. You'll learn what influenced their next steps and gain insights that could help you with your own critical choices. Welcome to Decision Dialogues.
1: Thanks for joining us on Decision Dialogues. We're thrilled to have you along. My name is Mark Willoughby, and I'm a Principal Wealth Manager and Chief Operating Officer of Modera Wealth Management, LLC. Today, my partner, Carl Graff, a Principal and Wealth Manager of Modera in our Charlotte office, and I will be chatting with Bill Glenn, the Executive Chairman of Crenshaw Associates. Crenshaw Associates provides premier career and talent services exclusively for senior executives and leading corporations. Welcome everyone to the show, and I'll hand it over to Carl.
2: Thank you, Mark. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Carl. We appreciate you sharing some time with us and some insights, and so let's get started. Briefly, I'll just give you an intro. After a long and successful career as corporate executive, you became the majority shareholder and executive chairman of Crenshaw Associates. Why don't we begin with that and tell us how that you arrived there and what was attractive about Crenshaw?
3: Great. Well, arriving there was a long road without giving a too detailed a resume. After graduating school, I started selling toothpaste on the streets of Manhattan and back offices of grocery stores for Procter & Gamble. I then went after a series of assignments, went to Pepsi and ran the bottling operations in New Jersey with 600 Teamsters. Eventually running the food service business. And then I went from Pepsi to American Express. So I'm from driving a truck at Pepsi to bottling uh, to financial services in American Express. And then the last assignment I had is I spun off one of the two divisions of American Express and ran it as CEO for a few years and then left, which led me to a whole lot of decisions and ultimately to Crenshaw Associates.
2: Well, it sounds like your career prepared you for just about anything that you wanted to take on. Correct. So why Crenshaw?
3: It's a a really interesting question. I had a long history of B2B businesses with b 2 b to c constructs. After leaving Global Business Travel, I started looking at different businesses, and especially with private equity companies, and possibly running some of their portfolio companies. And I was attracted to Crenshaw for two two reasons. And the first has to do with lessons learned over my career, which are really in four areas. One is that good, motivated people make good business and staffing to the task. And the second was, Keep an eye on the customer and a compelling value propositions because customers don't buy products. They buy what products can do for for you. The third is don't incrementalize and look at the size of the prize. And the fourth is it's all about strategy. And at Procter & Gamble, one of the senior executives when I was early in my career said, strategy, strategy it's all about execution. And what I learned is that and notice is that companies, regardless of the size in the B2B businesses and their senior executives, and particularly CEOs, don't spend enough time on customers either in person or just what the value proposition was. And so, A is I focused on B2B to C businesses or B2B businesses with B2B to C constructs. The second was that during my exploration after leaving Amex with PE firms, I thought about where I could add the most value and and drive a compelling value proposition. And there were a couple of companies that came up through the PE businesses that were probably $100 million companies, which is far smaller than the 2 billion or 6 billion companies I had managed. And the PE firms were saying, you only have big company experience. Can you run a small company? So the decision came in two ways. One was from a business standpoint. And I knew Crenshaw historically because when I left Pepsi and joined American Express, they thought I needed an executive coach because I had gone from like running a truck to financial services. And of course I need an executive coach and Barb Brandolf became an executive coach who was the CEO of Crenshaw. And I hired Crenshaw of the years. So I knew the brand really well and I knew the space and understood that there was an ability to add capital and a compelling value proposition to the space. And so I thought that egotistically I could disrupt the industry. The second was I got tired of hearing from BE companies that because I had been with a large company, I couldn't run a small one. So I guess I decided I'm going to buy a small one. And so I put my capital in Crenshaw. And, And so I think a long story, winded story, but it was a combination of what I knew I could do from a business standpoint and also probably wrongly said, Emotionally, I'm tired of these people telling me what I couldn't do, and I decided to do it.
2: It's pretty interesting. So, you literally tried Crenshaw before you bought them, right?
3: That's right. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And then all the PE people put a chip on your shoulder, and you're like, all right, I'm going to take you guys on.
3: Right. Which is probably the wrong way to make it. it. (laughs) Um, But I think it was grounded in a lot of thought and thinking about what my next chapter would look like.
2: Just to clarify briefly, because we have a pretty varied audience, if you could just briefly clarify what B2B and B2C means so that everybody's uh, on track with you.
3: B2B is business to business, so where you're selling your value proposition, your products or services to businesses, and B2B businesses with a consumer construct or an employee construct. So you're literally selling a compelling value proposition to the corporation as well as either to their employees or to their customers. And so really it's, it's twofold in terms of how, I'm, how I look at those businesses that you need something to the corporation because companies don't buy your product or services. They buy what they can do for them. And when I was running the global business travel business, it was we needed a compelling value proposition to the corporation, to administration, to the corporation, as well as to their employees.
2: Very interesting. I'm sure that you ran into some surprises, however, on this new journey, right? Because let's face it, the $2 billion company has a lot of resources that a company like Crenshaw, for instance, does not. So you know, what surprised you? What did you not expect other than the pandemic, of course? And I would like to ask you how you responded to the challenges.
3: Sure. First of all, the lessons I learned over the years that I talked about up front were really, really important and reinforced. The differences though, or surprises were things that I knew but didn't necessarily take into consideration when I was making the change, which was really hard to recruit great talent to a small, smaller company, especially since my network had been senior executives with larger corporations. There's a salary component, there's a bonus component, And then there's equity and or with large corporations, stock. So that became more difficult than I anticipated and still is the case that the folks I want to bring in are folks that I knew or knew of and connected with and probably weren't at the same stage of the career that I was and or wanted a lot more equity than I was willing to give up for not an investment. So that continues to be a challenge. The other is that in a smaller company or a very small company, surrounding yourself with that kind of talent is critically important and a bit lonely or difficult. So Barb Reindolf is terrific at what she does. Of course, the smartest thing I did was to make sure that I gave her enough equity to stay and keep motivated because I can't possibly do what she does. She's got years of experience and our coaching or support group or one of the value, most valuable things we have are our assets and the people and the coaches who engage in engagements with our customers but barb's busy doing what she does well and for the first time in my career i'm literally not only writing the decks but editing the decks and making the contacts with customers so it gets somewhat lonely and so, I'm, uh, which is important, I'm relying on my network of folks that I had grown up with or been my mentors or my bosses to, to give us, give me sort of advice, being able to bounce things off of being a sounding board and a trusted advisor. Interestingly, that's exactly some of the things that we deliver to the CEOs and executives that we do business with.
2: That's... Uh... That's really interesting how a uh, your outside network scaled down. You're bringing in key resources to help you along the way and how you see how it equates with what you guys are doing.
3: Yeah, important too, Carl, a part of your question, which is I only ever had to worry about getting beat up about my PL performance, right? And I was running big businesses in the GBT So, large businesses, $6 billion. GBT was a $2 billion spinoff. And I really never had to worry about cash flow. It was more about my P&L performance, right, which is worrisome. And now all of a sudden, I'm worried about how much cash we have in the business and the flow of that cash. So I never had to look at sort of the, the bank account, which is something that I'm looking at today, which was um, fun. So I'd always manage the p very, very carefully and aware of cash flow and the PL, but never fully had to worry about it. And today is that, that's what I'm focused on occasionally. And with COVID, it became a full-time job rather than just occasionally looking at the bank account and or cash flow in the P&L.
2: So what adjustments did you have to make during COVID? Obviously, cash flow was constrained, so... You're looking at things in a different way. And how did you guys adjust to that? And how did you, I don't know, make the make the best of what was available, we'll say?
3: Well, a couple of things. One is that it's a really interesting question because one of the consulting firms that I used as we were looking at some a particular acquisition that we could possibly make has a webinar session every two months, and it's about reigniting growth during the COVID. And all of their panelists for three of the meetings have been where demand during COVID went through the roof, and they had to adjust their supply chain, do things in their manufacturing plants to make sure that they were healthy and safe for their employees. And so they asked for comments from folks who had you know, called in and been invited in. And I said that it'd be really interesting if you had a guest or a panelist where demand went to zero instead of demand was exceed right, driving incredible change. So the, the example they had is CEO from King Arthur, Flower, right? And then minute COVID hit or right after, their demand went up eightfold. And so... They had to do things that they had never done before, but it was all about keeping inventory and driving inventory and making sure the quality was in place and issues in the manufacturing plant, but supply chain issue. But none of them that they've had where supply went to zero or demand went to zero. Ours didn't quite go to zero, but approached it. So year one, we grew 55%. And in 2020, our business ultimately Wound up down 17%, which we're pretty proud of. But for a period of time, it was very, very soft. And cash flow was, you know, very, very tight. And so we had to cut back on some of the investments we made. And unfortunately, I had staffed up and put in capital to grow the business because we were on a trajectory. And so it became pretty difficult. But my focus was hanging around the rim, as they say which is making sure that while we couldn't, I knew we weren't getting engagements from the customers, but we wanted to keep connected and keeping connected by one is giving gratis sessions out to some of the customers that we knew their executives were going under some stress and anxiety and still are. And just keeping our name involved and not necessarily soliciting business, but giving sort of our feedback and advice and observations on what we're hearing and seeing. And I think that kept us in the game.
1: Did, did, did any of your prior career, Bill, prepare you for the sort of decisions you had to make in the last 12 months?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, Mark, I'd always pride myself on strict investment and capital allocation in large companies. So I wasn't just managing the PL. and And as I've told Carl over the year that, a lot of my experiences were the most autonomous business units that you could possibly have. So, for example, at PepsiCo, I was running the food service business, which is a lot smaller than running brand Pepsi or, or right the brand business. And so I was able to make a lot more decisions than someone running one of those businesses. Another example, at American Express, I chose not to run the consumer issuing business but the merchant business, which was critically important to the company, but not necessarily day-to-day focus from Ken Chenault, who's the CEO. And so I had experiences making p and decisions that allowed me to look at more than just the top line and making decisions on capital allocation and investment prioritization. And I think that helped a lot. But uh, in addition to that, all of my experiences, I think, helped me from when I ran the bottling operations in New Jersey, I had 600 Teamsters, and I actually had to negotiate two Teamster contracts. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So there were decisions that I was faced with that probably someone with large company experience hadn't had those experiences, and I think that helped. Got it. At the same time, Mark, I wasn't fully prepared from an experience from either COVID or not being able to be surrounded by the highest, best talent that I had throughout
1: my career. Understand.
2: So many of those things that you learned in your prior life were adaptable to your current situation, even though it was different. But no matter what, as an entrepreneur in a a much smaller business, the lack of built-in support creates other issues that and how did you how did you overcome some of those? I mean, how when you we're getting up and during the pandemic and just trying to stay in touch with people. I would think motivating the people you have staying around the rim is a lot more difficult than just saying, let's do that, right? How did you keep everyone moving forward during that time?
3: What's very, very interesting in, about our business and the business model we have, which is the right one, which is our coaches and advisors are 1099s. And so they're not employees. Right now, we try to absorb as much of their business as possible. And one of the things I did early on was getting them more engaged in our business and understanding our business and why we were doing some things than possibly they had been exposed to in the past. So, treating them as much as employees as I could without them being full time employees. And there's a tension there because we don't want them to know what our financials are or a top line growth, right? And so it was really, really important to keep them engaged. And I think the relationships that we had built over the first year and a half, even though Barb had great relationships with them, but I made it a point to keep them more engaged than they had been by meeting with them on a quarterly basis as a team and giving them just understanding what we're doing in the marketplace and how we're focused on growth was really, really helpful. So that helped, and it really helped – Carl, when we actually stayed around the rim and gave gratis coaching sessions and offers that to corporations because they volunteered to give up their time to do that. And so I think, you know, having the organization stay focused was really, really helpful. What's been a bit troubling for us internally and for me personally is the exact same thing that has happened to executives and corporations, which is 14 Zoom calls a day.
1: Right, right.
3: And they're exhausted. It's a relentless pace, right? And they think they're getting the work done, but really the toll on the executives and themselves, we have CEOs telling us about coining phrases like PTSD and uncertainty, and I think, for Barb and myself, occasionally I find myself just exhausted about not being able to make the progress we're making and just staying around the rim takes a lot of energy and time and thinking about how we're going to, going to do that.
2: So how do, you, how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you recharge, I guess, because it, is, it has been a relentless pace for a lot of people in these last year and a half and for many of us, you when you keep up that pace, you expect to see progress that's tangible and you have in the past. So how do you deal with that and how do you keep coming back day after day? Well,
3: it's also harmful to my ego a little bit, right, which plays into it because even the folks that I've, I've had historically a great relationship with and we've actually started to get new business from over the past year and a half aren't as open to the discussions that we had before or open to me taking up their time. And, and I never present myself as wasting their time, right? There's always a purpose to what I'm doing. You know, I always learn through experience and I'm just thinking about the financial crisis at Amex, right? In 08 and 09, which is keeping motivated by thinking about the size of the prize and that it's going to be a long term. And the turnaround from COVID is going to be a long road. It's not a, as I tell folks, these are not episodic events like the tech bubble or 9-11 or the financial crisis. This is sustainable change. And it's not just COVID, but there are things like future of work and it's changing the industry. So keeping myself motivated by, I think, A is, Physically and health-wise, making sure I'm doing the right things right for myself because I know when I'm active physically, I'm more active mentally, and that's really, really important. Number two is Lisa's been my wife's been pretty good throughout all this, which is there's nothing to worry about in terms of the company not making it, which we're not in danger to, but not making it. Just not making it is not what I signed up for. And personally, that's not encouraging, right? So I think those two things are, I guess, some of the motivations. And we're starting to see a window opening up that we hadn't seen the first nine months, right? But as I tell people, it's really tough, I know, for them to kick me out of their office when I'm there talking about new business. It's really easy when you're on Zoom, End the conversation, and then they go on to something else and But you know recently, the dialogue has started to pick up more and more people, even that i 'm connecting with, are starting to get opening up their channels or their awareness or their appetite for for what we do
2: that's really interesting. It sounds like aside from the pent up demand you would have in the normal course of things. The extra stress that you just alluded to for corporate executives all over would drive a, a lot more opportunities for you. Are you looking ahead to when you are going to be the King Flower guy, King Arthur guy, who has to contend with too much growth all of a sudden after you know this lean year and a half? And what are you doing to ac- try to accommodate that?
3: I pray every day for too much, too much growth and, and an issue on capacity. I, I should- <laughs> That that's what I'm thinking about every day. With God willing, um, when is that going to happen? I. Uh, but in terms of preparing for that, it's all about making sure the team, the broad sense of the team, is really engaged and understand what we're doing. Right? and and also thinking about interviewing and keeping network with more coaches and advisors to bring on board because we have a very specific methodology. That really differentiates us in the marketplace. So choosing who are our coaches and advisors, which differentiates from a lot of folks in this space where they just choose coaches. And I wouldn't say randomly, that's unfair characterization, but for us, it's critically important that they follow our our methodology. Carl, I think your question also goes back to the ability to invest in the future, And right now, it's still difficult to make the investments that I want to make to continue to differentiate ourselves just because of cash flow and watching capital very, very closely.
1: One thing I'm interested in, Bill, when I look back at your career, our podcast is about decisions. And if I were to put you on the spot and look back at your career, what what were some of the best decisions? Or maybe there's one particular decision you made that you look back and say, wow, I'm glad I made that decision.
3: Yeah, there were so many transitions along the way and decisions. I think one was I'd been with Pepsi for two years and they were going through a ton of restructuring, just a ton of restructuring. This is the late 80s. I'd been there for two years. I'd been promoted literally two, two times. And then they were going through another. And at the same time, Hydric and Struggles called me and said, We have a great opportunity with a printing and distribution business, private company, leverage buyout. So they had just started getting profitable, and we'd like you to run their sales and marketing organization for a $35 million printing company. By the way, Mark, this is both the worst decision I ever made and the best decision I ever made, which is I went up and i because i thought i was a star i thought i was a rock star and went up in this private company and 10 months after i got there they decided to put the company up for sale which would have been great for me at the time i would have made a lot of money at the time it was a lot of money right and they decided they couldn't sell it at the multiple they wanted took a 10 million dollar private placement and started repaying the shareholders the five investors and then i was stuck running. $35 million company, sales and marketing, paying back debt. Huh. And the boss walked into my office one day, chairman, and he said, I think we should call it quits. And I'm thinking we, he probably didn't mean he and I, he probably meant me. And so I got fired. And the best decision I was ma- made was going back to Pepsi. Because I knew at the time that I could succeed there, that a large company was really advantaged for me for a whole lot of reasons, enjoying the colleagues, the learning experiences, the breadth of experiences. And so the best decision I ever made was going back to Pepsi at the time. Interesting,
2: Yeah. That's very interesting. It almost sounds like you didn't want to be in a private business unless you had the levers of a control in your hands. And now you do.
3: Yeah, with the exception of the no qualification there. Exact, you know, exactly right. Now, I don't fashion myself as a true entrepreneur for two reasons. On the one side, I think I had made decisions throughout my career to run the most autonomous business unit and act like an entrepreneur. The second is, though, that I didn't put all my net worth at stake buying the company right? And so if it didn't work out, I'd be personally disappointed. And there's, yeah, there's some money I would have lost, but it wasn't going to break. So when I think about real true entrepreneurs, where they put everything at risk, I don't put myself in the same category, but I like the idea of fashioning myself as an entrepreneur.
2: Well, I'd say you qualify. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else that you'd like to add? How does, one thing we didn't touch on is your support network at home which obviously is a big factor in anyone's successful journey. How did Lisa feel about this, this new chapter that you've taken on?
3: Oh, she thought it was going to be terrific because she had more confidence in what I could do than I did, even though I knew what we needed to do to grow the business. I knew the brand. I knew the company. Roger Enrico at PepsiCo once said when he was buying, I forget what company, that you can't pay enough for a good brand regardless of their performance. And I thought as I looked at the industry, that crutch off from my familiarity with them and knowing what they could do and my experiences and the right amount of capital could really grow that business, right? And so I had a lot of confidence, but at least I had, I think, more confidence. Uh, she was also supportive that don't worry about it if it doesn't work. Even though she never told me that and didn't think that it couldn't work, I knew it was there, right? And... I'm fortunate enough to have three great girls. I think they were proud of what I had accomplished. Not necessarily what I was going to do, but what I had accomplished. So I think with that as background, and, and I think over the years, pretty good financial advice and how I, how I had invested my money gave me, I think, a lot of confidence. And I, I think Lisa's confidence in whatever happens would be just fine.
2: That's great. Well, it's, it makes me think of one other question, which is you had a very highly successful career by anyone's measure, I would say, but yet you took this leap and a new challenge. Was there an element of unfinished business somewhere in your mind that maybe motivated you towards that? Or?
3: Yeah, so, uh, I think one of them, well, I didn't want to stop working regardless. I didn't want to stop working.
1: sounded like you wanted to prove those PE guys wrong too, Carl.
3: Mark, is that, that's where I was going to, which is part of it was I had done a lot of things and been pretty successful, and I didn't want to, I I didn't want to end my career, and B is I, the PE guys were all 35-year-old who had done modeling and never negotiated contracts with Teamsters. Where they were literally going to move Lisa and the girls out of our house because they thought there was going to be a strike, and right hadn't had that experience, and so part of it, which is probably the wrong thing to make a decision based on, which is I wanted to prove to these folks because I don't think they cared whether I you know what I did or not, but maybe prove to myself a little bit.
1: You put all those motivations into the pot, and uh, you end up in a good place, Bill.
3: I think so. I think all said, I'm going to. A pretty good
2: place all right that's great well maybe this is time for the question okay the last question of the day which is what was the last non-financial decision you had to make it was getting another dog
1: oh boys that's <laughs> right so we had
3: we had had two dogs for a long time and each passed away within two years of each other and then so we had zero dogs, and then Lisa said we have to get another dog, and so we got Henry, who's a, a mini sheepadoodle Okay, terrific dog. And then we have Henry, and we have, he's now two for about a year and a half. And Lisa said, "I think Henry needs a a friend," and so, unbeknownst to me, she had done all the research, which I should have anticipated. And the next thing I know. She and my daughter are driving. My oldest daughter lives in Chicago, driving back to Chicago. And on the way, they stopped with a breeder in Ohio. And I have pictures of this other dog with Lisa and Carly. And I knew it was game over. So, Carl, I really didn't make the decision, which is clearly non-financial. I was forced into making the decision. And so the last thing, part of that is that do not, so this is advice, take it or leave it, do not buy a dog on February 4th and on February 6th, have three feet of snow and 10 degrees outside, and a puppy, which is in the middle of the night where they wake up, that you have to carry it downstairs, bring it outside at three in the morning with three feet of snow on the ground. And that was probably qualifies for the biggest non-financial decision recently that I had to make.
2: Well, I think I can guess who was the one up at three in the morning trudging outside with, uh, and what's the dog's name? The second dog, by the way? George. George. You and George outside three in the morning. I can picture He's an
3: English sheepdog. So now at 16 weeks, he's 45 pounds, Wow, which is larger than Henry who now has to sort of accommodate the other piece is that you can never have a big enough house (laughs) regardless. And Chloe, our youngest moved back from California. She's staying with us for a couple of months and she has a dog. So there are three dogs in the house. Good luck, Bill. (laughs) Thanks Mark. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Well,
2: thank you, Bill. We appreciate your time today. It's a great conversation. We certainly hope our audience enjoyed it. And I know I did. And I learned a few things that I didn't know about you, even after all this time. Thanks, Carl, thank you. Mark. Thanks a lot.
1: And thanks very much to Carl Graff and to Bill Glenn for letting us listen in on their conversation. We appreciate their time and perspectives. And thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on Decision Dialogues for more stories from successful business owners. So long for now.
0: Thank you for listening to Decision Dialogues. We hope you found today's stories helpful for your own decision-making. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can subscribe on your preferred podcasting app or visit our website, where you'll also find show notes and important disclosures. www.moderowealth.com forward slash Decision Dialogues. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.